Well, this morning we're going to begin a new series in the book of Colossians. And Lord willing, spill over to just a brief series in Philemon. There are some overlapping uh, factors between uh, the book of Colossians and Philemon. So I invite you to turn there if you'd like. We're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, really an introduction to uh, the book itself. Before we read these couple verses, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we are so thankful that you revealed yourself to us in your word. We have a lot of messages we read throughout the week, a lot of instruction manuals, a lot of newspaper articles. We are reading stuff all throughout the day. And so it's tempting for us when we turn to your word to read it as just another source of information, just more things to rattle around in our brain. And that's all it will be unless your Holy Spirit comes to work. And so we pray that you would miraculously impress upon our hearts the authoritative nature of what we're about to do in looking at your word. And we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, change us so that none of us will leave here the same. Do this for your son's sake and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 1 at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and ever with us here uh, this morning, the Apostle Paul is regarded to have gone on three major missionary journeys. His first journey is found in Acts 13 to 14. It was accomplished in the year 47 to 49 AD, roughly that time frame. His second journey, you can find in Acts 15 through Acts 18, verse 23. It was done roughly in AD 49 through 52. And his third journey, which is AD 52 to 56, is found in Acts 18, 23 through chapter 21, verse 26. And during his third missionary journey, he came to a town by the name of Ephesus, and he stayed there for two years and three months. He began to preach and teach in the synagogue for three months, but he eventually withdrew because a bunch of stubborn people were speaking against Jesus or speaking particularly against the way. And so he went to a, a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he, there he taught and preached for two years. And we're told in Acts 19.10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, it's curious how Luke puts it. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, but Paul was just speaking in one spot in the town of Ephesus. So how did they all hear? Well, Asia was a Roman province in what is now Western Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was in that province, and so were three small towns located about 100 miles away from Ephesus. The towns were Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Now, the word that the Apostle Paul, this great Christian missionary, was teaching and preaching in Ephesus, that word spread around, and apparently many people came to Ephesus to hear him preach and teach, and that's how all of Asia heard. They came to hear him preach and teach, and they went out and they told other people throughout the province, this Roman province. Now, we're not sure when, but at some point it's likely that a man by the name of Epaphras was in Ephesus, and he heard the Apostle Paul preach and teach, and Epaphras became a believer. And then he went back home to Colossae and told others about Jesus. And many others believed in Colossae, and a church was formed. 
We're told in Colossians 1.7, you learn the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So he's the one who likely was the founder of the church at Colossa. But not only did Epaphras spread the gospel to those at Colossa, he also labored hard in his prayers for the believers in Colossa and Hierapolis and Laodicea. That's found in Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, which is why many think his hometown is Colossa, that's where he lived. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Epaphras was a prayer warrior as a warrior. He spent a lot of time praying for the believers at Colossa and Hierapolis and Laodicea. And if you want a visual of what this looks like, let's just think about it this way. Epaphras was a citizen who lived in Oskaloosa, and he heard that Paul was in Ames preaching about roughly 100 miles away. So he went up to Ames, heard Paul preach and teach. After he became a believer, he went back to Oskaloosa and Lighten and Pell and just told everybody. And sure enough, in Oskaloosa, there was a church that was formed. And maybe through Epaphras, the church in Lighten was formed and Pella was formed. Or maybe it was others who came down and were instrumental in the planting of the churches in Pella and Lighten. And Epaphras only planted the one in Oskaloosa. But you get the picture. He had gone there to hear him. He left. And the church in Colossa was born out of his ministry. Now, something was happening at the church in Colossa, which alarmed Epaphras, who was likely their pastor at the time. Apparently, there was some heresy and false teaching sweeping into the church, and the Colossians hadn't imbibed it fully yet. It's not like their church was destroyed like the churches in Galatia when Paul wrote to them very adamantly, and they had already begun to imbibe the teaching of Judaizers. That hadn't happened yet in Colossa, but it was about to, and Epaphras thought it would very certainly come and that they would fall away. So he did the unthinkable. He traveled 1,100 miles. Well, it's 1,100 to 1,300 miles from Colossa all the way to Rome where Paul was in prison. This would have involved walking 140 miles to Miletus. Remember, it's hard for us to fathom this, right? We just hop in our car 140 miles divided by 70 miles per hour. We're there in two hours, right? Think days, think weeks, think months. He first walks 140 miles. He catches a ship to travel 250 miles to the Isthmus that uh, Corinth is on walked about eight miles across that isthmus. Then he would travel another 350 miles by sea to uh, Brundusium, and the final leg of the trip would be 360 miles on foot. And when he arrives, he tells Paul about the Colossian church, and the report is generally encouraging, which we'll notice in Colossians 1, 3 through 14. Paul's so thankful regarding what he hears. But the heresy, which was invading the church, diminished Christ and made much of strict rules for spiritual growth, and Paul was very concerned about that. And so he writes his letter, indeed, so thankful, but also realizing that the Colossians need him to delineate things so that they don't fall away from Christ. And if we could say that Ephesians is a letter about the church of Christ, then Colossians is a letter about the Christ of the church. Ephesians emphasizes the church. Colossians emphasizes Christ. And we'll see that Throughout chapter, just chapter after chapter, all four chapters, Christ is made so much of because he was being diminished by the heresy that was coming into the church at Colossae. I want us to notice just three things as we walk through the introduction. Number one, the author, then the audience, and then the greeting or the purpose. So the author of the letter, the audience of the letter, and then the greeting or the purpose of the letter. So first, the author. Now, this is 
Paul, this is his new name. Remember who Paul was. He used to be Saul, and he used to persecute the church. He was doing a lot of persecution in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. He was killing Christians. He thought he was honoring God by doing it. He was insolent. He was a blasphemer. He was a murderer, and he was glad to do it. And then he gets a letter that says he's got permission to go arrest Christians in other places, particularly Damascus, and he's on the road. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, tackles him to the ground like no tackle any linebacker has ever done in the history of the NFL. And he says, you're mine. It's over. Why are you persecuting me? And we might be asking, well, he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church, but Jesus takes it personally when you persecute his people. Why are you persecuting me? It's like, who are you, Lord? And on that day, he gets saved, and he also becomes an apostle. And God sets him apart to be a, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles in particular. He says, through you, there's going to be a lot of people that hear about my name. So this Jesus hater becomes this Jesus lover, and his name goes from Saul to the apostle Paul. And he was the apostle of apostles. He was just a tremendous individual, a sinner like you and me, to be sure. Not somebody we worship or venerate, but indeed somebody who God used mightily. A brilliant mind and a big heart, a combination just so hard to find. Loved God, loved people, tender as a mother with a nursing infant, and yet as fierce out of love for the truth uh, in some of his letters. Just an incredible combination that the Apostle Paul has. And we're told, as he introduces himself, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Oh, he's an apostle of Jesus. He used to hate Jesus. Now he's his apostle. He used to want to stamp out those who belong to the way. And now he's actually promoting the way. Apostle means one who's sent, and particularly one who's sent with a commission. One who's sent with orders. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm writing this letter. I'm one who's got orders from Jesus Christ. I'm sent by him. I'm under his command. I'm at his beck and call, whatever he asks me to do, the message he sends me out to go proclaim, that's what my life is. That's all my life is. And so he's acknowledging that he's under authority. And thus when Paul writes that he's an apostle, it puts this whole letter of Colossians into a, into a different world, right? It's not just fun reading. It's not just like a little bit of information that we you know, maybe take in and then try and get rid of later. It's an authoritative message from the Lord himself. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. And so when we read this letter from, uh, to the Colossians, we read it as the very word of God. And notice Paul also says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He didn't make himself an apostle. If it was up to him, he just stamped out every Christian he could possibly come by. The other apostles didn't make him apostles. He's an apostle by the will of God. God, out of all the people he could have said, will be used to take the gospel to the Gentiles, found this God-hating, Jesus-hating, believer-hating, believer-murdering individual who had tremendous training at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, born into a tribe of Israel, is just incredible, had all this great religious pedigree, and says, you know what, I'm going to make you mine. And by my will, you're actually going to go bring this message out. Instead of stomping it out, you're actually going to proclaim it. Just tremendous. And Paul acknowledges that. I'm not an apostle because I thought it was a great use of my time. If it was up to Paul, he would have used his time to go against the work of Christ. He says, I'm an apostle because it was God's will that I be one. 
It was God's will to save me. It was God's will to send me out. And he's writing as an apostle uh, to the church at Colossae. I want us to consider something. I came across this Sam Storms. He's a theologian and author commenting on by the will of God wrote this. Paul was an apostle by the will of God, whereas some of you are school teachers by the will of God. Others are housewives by the will of God. While many are nurses, physicians, lawyers, factory workers, salesmen, athletes, or missionaries by the will of God. God's will extends to your life and calling and career no less than to Paul's. Yours may not entail the spiritual authority that his did, but it is no less an expression of God's enablement and calling than Paul's or Peter's or John's or anyone to whom we attribute greatness. Have you paused to ponder the fact that you are, that who you are is by the will of God, as well as what you do, where you live, how much you own, and whatever you accomplish. We're thinking about. Paul's an apostle by the will of God. You and I are what we are and do what we do, also by the will of God. And then he references Timothy. Literally, Timothy, the brother, language of our is thrown in there. The letter's not written by Timothy, but Timothy, the brother, is with Paul and what an encouragement Timothy is to Paul. In fact, tonight we'll look at that in Philippians 3. Paul had no one like Timothy who was just so genuine. And so he acknowledged that Timothy's with him. Uh, Paul is in chains. He can have visitors and Timothy is with him. And he often does. Paul makes reference to the people who are with him uh, when he writes a letter. So that's the author, the Apostle Paul. The audience, number two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa. Now, saints and faithful brothers, let's just camp on that for a moment. The first, one I want, first thing I want to point out is your ESV Bible has a footnote to highlight that the word brothers ought to be translated brothers and sisters or could be translated. And it should be translated that in most of the instances that brothers is used in Paul's letters. Uh, the Greek word for brothers can refer either to male siblings or to all of one's siblings. And Paul is clearly referring to all the siblings in Christ who were at Colossae. Now, translating uh, brothers in this verse as brothers and sisters is not capitulating to feminism, as some people would charge. Rather, it's more accurately conveying the message. For example, in English, I, I was trying to think of a good way of putting this. We often, when we uh, say hi to a group of people, say, hey, guys, right? And we'll say that to a group of mixed people. Hey, guys. Now, we're not slighting the gals whom we're saying hi to, but it's just an expression we use. Guys can refer to males only. It can also refer to a group of people, and we just shorten it. So Paul is saying, hey, to all the faithful saints, to all the, the brothers and sisters, to all the folks, to every believer in Christ at Colossae, greetings to you. So a good translation would be to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Second thing I want to highlight about the audience is that saints and faithful brothers and sisters are here equivalent. The saints are faithful brothers and sisters, and the faithful brothers and sisters are saints. So a way to translate it would be to the saints, even the faithful brothers and sisters. In other words, uh, the faithful brothers and sisters is a further explanation of what it is to be a saint. To be a saint is to be a faithful brother and a sister in Christ. And I want us to notice something as well. The saints is plural. I don't want to spend too much time camping on this, but it's plural. I think there's only one time in all of Paul's letters, in Philippians 4.21, where saints is singular, and he says, greet every saint. So even there, there's a multitude of saints that he's talking about. Now, one of the implications of this is the need for believers to live in community, right? Paul writes, Paul writes his letters to saints, to multiple believers, 
He writes his letters and cares for churches because churches are indeed a group of believers together and their children. And so this letter is no exception where he refers to saints in the plural. Paul was maybe the greatest model of this needing Christian fellowship. He had so many friends, so many fellow co-laborers. If anybody could have stood by himself, you'd think it would be Paul. And yet he says, there was one time I only the Lord had to stand by me. Everybody else left me, but the Lord stood by me. And he writes it. Why? Just painful. You can hear his pain oozing off his letter to Timothy off the pages. Paul needed friends. Paul needed fellow believers around him for encouragement. We do as well. And I want to spend a little bit of time camping on this. He called them saints. The letter is to the saints at Colossae. What is a saint? Well, a saint in the world of Roman Catholicism is a super holy person whose life was somewhat heroic, stood out from all the rest. And the saints are people who are venerated. We just say they're worshiped, they're prayed to, they're prayed through. And the belief is, is that they have more access to God than a believer on earth. And so we pray through them, hoping that their appeals to God or their appeals to the Lord Jesus will go heard, whereas our appeals won't go heard because we're not quite as holy as they are. But that's not the definition of a saint. And that's not anything that Paul is talking about here. When he says to the saints, what a saint means at its most basic level is a set-apart one. Someone who's been set apart as special for a different purpose. It says nothing about their morality, although saints do become holy. We grow in our holiness. When he's writing to the saints, he's not saying, hey, I'm writing to all those of you who have arrived at a level of sanctification, which is just astonishing. He's saying, I'm writing to those of you who've been set apart by God for different use, pulled out of the world, pulled out of the mass of humanity through redemption in Christ, and who are now a special people dedicated by God for his use, for his glory, to make much of Jesus and to serve God while we yet have life, who've been set apart for eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. And so the moment that anyone is saved, they become a saint, someone who's been set apart by God for salvation. So here's just a few things regarding what it is to be a saint. You've been chosen in Christ for eternal life. Most people in this world do not have eternal life through Jesus Christ, but you do. God has set you apart for this privilege in his son. That's one thing that it is to be a saint, someone who's been set apart. You've been set apart for forgiveness. Most people in this world are not forgiven of their sins by God. You as a saint have been set apart as special to receive forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ's work. On the cross, he bled so we could be forgiven. He shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven, beloved. You're special in that your sins are forgiven. We've been set apart for God's household. All believers now belong to the household of God as his sons and daughters. Most people do not belong to the household of God. But the way is broad, the gate is wide, that leads to destruction. But God takes some people and sets them apart. They're the saints, they're the holy ones, they're the, the ones God has made different through redemption. And now we belong to his household. Are you a believer this morning? Then you're a saint. And this letter's to you. The people at Colossae were the first to hear it. You and I are maybe the four millionth to hear it. Who knows? 
but you've been set apart to hear this as well. I want to highlight just uh, one more thing about the audience. So notice it's in Christ at Colossae. These saints and faithful brothers, they're saints in Christ, and it's at Colossae. So first, there are, there are two universal truths being said, that these people at Colossae and every believer around the world is both in Christ and at Colossae. We have our citizenship in heaven, but we also reside in a specific geographic location on earth. We can be found somewhere. Right now we're sitting in a gym at Pella Christian Grade School in Pella, Iowa. There's believers all over the world in different geographic locations. But we're also in Christ. We all have that in common. Every believer does. Jesus Christ is our salvation. He's our deliverance. He's our redemption. He's our righteousness. He's our wisdom. He's our sanctification. And at the same time, we're not just in him with our citizenship in heaven together with all believers, united together in that way, but we're also spread all over the world where we don't have a lot of things in common. We don't have a lot of language in common. There's believers that speak hundreds of different languages. In fact, we could be face-to-face -face with another believer and not have, be able to communicate at all with them because they don't know English and we don't know Tigrani or whatever language that they're speaking. We also, if we met another believer, may have a lot of things that are uncommon regarding family life or work life. We have different skill sets. We have different backgrounds, whatever the case may be. And so we're spread all over the world, living in different places, but we are still in Christ. And these believers that Paul originally wrote to were in Christ, but they were at this little small town called Colossa, a town that's off the map now, a town that's even hard to find if you want to dig stuff up. A lot of people don't believe there's been any archaeological evidence of it. It's just kind of gone. So again, not a big city, not a major metropolitan area, kind of a hick town. You might think of Pella or Leitner, Oskaloosa, right? A town that's here, but a few hundred years is just gone. No evidence of it, just off the map. I want to mention something to any who don't believe or to those we might know who don't believe. It can be said of every single person on this planet that they are somewhere. So they're at Pella, they're at Des Moines, they're living in Paris, whatever the case may be, but it can only be said of Christians that they're both at Pella and in Christ and belong to heaven. And for any here today who don't believe your life is bound up with your geographic location, you're simply at Pella, that's all you are. You're simply at a gym in Pella, or you're at Pella, or you're at Iowa, wherever you live. And when your life on this earth ceases and you're no longer in Pella, but in the grave, you'll discover that all who are not in Christ are under the sentence of death and you're condemned and required to make payment for each of your sins forever. And so I certainly don't want that for you. No believer here does. And I encourage you to believe in Jesus Christ, take hold of the gospel promise so that you're not merely in Pella, but you're also in Jesus. Because being in Jesus is by far the most important part of what Paul's saying here. Being in Christ is having it all. That's where life is found. Life is not found in Pella. Life is found in Christ. Well, now we get to the greeting and to slash purpose. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Now, this is something of a standard greeting in Paul's letters. And it wouldn't be uncommon for people to greet each other with shalom if you were going to send a letter. So again, it's just a convention of Paul's day. But there's something in this greeting that I think is really helpful and really important. This is more than a, I hope it's going well. It's more than a, may the Lord bless you. This is a pronouncement of grace and peace to the believers at Colossae and to all Christians everywhere. 
It's a pronouncement. And we might ask, well, how do I get the grace and the peace bestowed here in this letter? It's grace and peace to you. Well, I, I want that. I want that favor. How do I get that? Right? What does that look like? And there's been some who have argued, and I think there's something to it, that the way we get the grace and the peace of God, the way we experience God's favor and this peace is by reading the letter. Very simple, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he walks into what he's writing about, what the Holy Spirit has written about. So how do we receive, how do we experience God's grace and peace to us? Well, we read the letter. We receive its encouragements and promises. We heed its warnings. And we obey its commands. Now I want to just highlight each of those before we close, because we'll look at those in detail as we walk through the letter. We first of all have to receive its encouragements. How do I come to experience and dwell in and imbibe and really be encouraged by what's in this letter? Be encouraged by God himself. Well, we have to receive the encouragements that are in the letter. Let me just highlight two of them. In chapter 1, verse 21, we're told, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How's that for encouragement? How do I experience God's grace to me and his peace to me? I receive and I believe these incredible gospel encouragements. In a world filled with messages, blaming everyone, blaming you, tearing apart relationships, calling everyone a dirty, rotten sinner who is guilty of something all the time, isn't it wonderful to know that through Christ's body of flesh on the cross, we've been reconciled to God? And that the triune God, the creator God, the God of heaven and earth, the only true and living God, views you as his friend now because of what he's done for you in Christ. That is just unbelievable. That's a real encouragement. I want to say if I want to experience this grace and peace that comes to me from God, I've got to believe this encouragement. There's a second great encouragement in chapter 2, verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And we're not going to go into an exegesis of that and drive it home, but isn't this unbelievable? Our sins are forgiven. Our debt's removed. God's grace comes to us as we appropriate and believe these truths that he says about us in his word. So Christian, you're reconciled to God. God is now your friend. Do you believe it? I want to experience God's grace and peace. Well, God tells you that you're reconciled to him, that he's now your friend. Do you believe it? Because if we don't believe it, then God's grace and peace is going to seem to miss us, as it were. <laughs> oh, I... I want to believe that God's gracious toward me and that I have peace with him. We've got to believe these great promises. We've got to believe these doctrinal truths regarding the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you. He laid down his life for you because he loves you. Do you believe this? You're going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach on the day of judgment. Do you realize and believe this? Do you allow yourself to be comforted by this? And all your sins are forgiven, right? Colossians 2.13. All of them are forgiven the record of debt that stood against you and me with its legal demands that said, die. It's gone. Nailed to the cross. Jesus died. I don't have to. Do you believe it? I want to experience anew and afresh God's grace to me 
and that peace of knowing God, the subjective peace of God. Well, if I'm going to experience that and enjoy that, I need to actually believe the gospel message. We also have to heed its warnings. Now, without getting into all the details of the false teaching which threatened to destroy the church, which we'll do as we walk through it, and as those things come up, a rather complicated teaching, there's actually very, almost no labels for it. it kind of confounds a lot of theologians and uh, teachers throughout the centuries, so we'll look at that confusion. But what I want us to understand is that false teaching is real. It's different from uh, accidentally saying something false when you teach or failing to communicate clearly when you teach. False teaching and heresy is such that if you press the teachers to clarify what they mean, you discover that it's not in accord with the scriptures. It's just false. It's ugly. It's heresy. It's, it, it's got to get out. Or it will actually destroy people if they imbibe it. There really is false teaching. Doctrine which is straight from the pit of hell developed by Satan or by us as human beings, which if we believe it and live by it will at best discourage us and lead us into all kinds of sins and at worst destroy our souls in hell while we think we're heading to heaven. And such warnings exist in this letter. Let me just read three of them. 2 verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Chapter 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Chapter 2.18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Let me lump those warnings together. See to it, let no one pass judgment on you, let no one disqualify you. How do I experience the grace and the peace of God? Well, heed the warnings, right? Don't believe people when they pervert the gospel. When folks twist it around and say you have to add to Christ, don't buy into it. <laughs> don't let anyone tell you that. And if they do, push back. And if they keep doing it, you just have nothing more to do with them. That's how we experience this incredible grace and peace from God. And then finally, we obey the commands. Now, Colossians covers so many different areas of life. It begins with our relationship with the Lord, 2.6, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. It speaks about our minds, set your minds on things that are above. It speaks about how we speak, don't lie to one another, right? It speaks about our relationships with other believers, about our relationships in family, husbands, wives, parents, children, employees, and employers. It speaks about so many different things regarding how we as believers are called to live now that the Lord has saved us. So God graciously saves us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and then he fills us with his spirit, commands us how we are to live for him, and enables us to make progress in holiness. This is just wonderful. And as we hear these truths, and as we imbibe and drink deeply of the things taught here, we more and more get to experience and enjoy this incredible favor from God and the peace that he extends to us through Jesus Christ. So, Lord willing, next week we'll begin looking at verse 3 and get a go on this incredible journey of walking through Colossians. Let's pray together.